Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night by no more. They will need no light of, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one whom heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You may be seated. What was just read for you uh, uh, brings us to uh, the second part of John's, uh, the end of John's vision, really, of heaven, uh, the end of uh, the book of Revelation, the end of our series uh, on the book of Revelation, and the end of the Bible, and really of the end of history altogether. And what's fascinating is, is it basically ends where it began. You know, creation ends with a particular storyline. Eugene Peterson, 
uh, author uh, and pastor, uh, one of the books I've been reading about, he says this, he says, the biblical story began quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The story that has creation for its first word has creation for its last word. However, we've gone from a garden that is good to a city that is paradise. See, the Bible is not meant to be uh, this confusing hodgepodge of literature you know, with different genres saying tons of different things. It's got a particular melodic plot line that's intended across all the genres and the different authors to be used by God to communicate a basic storyline throughout the whole thing that basically says this, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That throughout the whole thing, there has been one story that God has been tying together through all of His works in history, climactically in the person of Jesus, and drawing it to an end here in the book of Revelation. And it ends in paradise. So let's end this way with the book of Revelation and our study on the idea of paradise with this. Let's ask three questions. What is it? How can you make it yours? And three, how can you know it will be yours? First, what is it? So the image we're given is that it is a city, which... uh, um, some of you does not sound like paradise uh, with too many people and too many structures and things. Uh, but the second part of the image is that, you know, it, it, there's all this sort of garden, uh, rural country imagery with, with a river and with trees um, that sort of suggests it, it is a paradise for everyone. But really, those images are not what makes it uh, the immediate paradise. What makes it paradise is what we're told in verse 3 when it says this, no longer will there be anything accursed. That is, uh, all of the curses, all of the effects of sin and darkness and death that were brought in in Genesis 3 will be removed. Everything will fade, every part that came into our existence in that moment will ultimately fade away. The, the great shadow will be gone. And we're given really three sort of uh, pictures of this in the immediate verses to follow this. In verse 1, it says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And it says, uh, the river of the water of life. Now, think about this. Water... uh, in all of cultures, it is the sustainer and the source of life. And it, when it uses the word life here, uh, there's two Greek words that commonly are used when you say life. There's bios, which means to sort of biological life. But there's also the Greek word zoe, which means joy, meaning, happiness, fulfillment. And that's the word that John uses here. He says, in the middle of this city is not just a cup of eternal meaning and fulfillment. It's a river 
which says it is not a circumstantially given meaning and joy and happiness that awaits you in paradise. It is an ongoing stream that never runs out. It is a, there's a permanent source for you to always be drinking of fulfillment. And you don't have to go search for this. This is not like you need to find a backpack and go hike the mountains of Europe to find yourself. It says it's in the middle of the city, which means it's right there in front of you at all times, always available. And it says that it is clear as crystal, which means it's unpolluted with any twist. There's no catches to this. It's not like you give yourself to this and there's a consequence later that you're going to pay for tasting the goodness of this. You know, it's not like an amazing dessert that you gorge yourself on on the end of a dinner, tasting something so wonderful and know you're going to pay for this later in some sort of way. There is no twist. You will sip on something that you've never tasted that will taste better with every drink. But in the next image, it says in verse 2, With that, it says, there is a tree of life. It says, on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It says, the leaves of this tree will heal not just uh, individual people, it will heal nations. Now, this word heal, uh, heal, is the Greek word uh, therapian, uh, and it means more than just removing wounds. It's an on, it means to have ongoing health provided for. It, it, it's like an ongoing nourishment. But its fruit is more than this, because what its fruit will be is it will taste life the way that it's designed to be. Now, here's what's fascinating about the tree of life. If you look at this across Scripture, it's mentioned in the book of Genesis and in the book of Revelation, but the only other time it's mentioned in the entire Bible is in the book of Proverbs. So there's a lot of Proverbs that you will read that describe a wise way to do life and say it's like a tree of life. Now, why would the Proverbs be saying this? Because... What the Proverbs are trying to do is that there is an art to life that God has given us and says, life in my design is the most joyful way to do it. It's the most successful way to do it. It's the most freeing way to do it. It's the most flourishing way for societies to do life. And what the tree of life was, was a bite into the perfect way to the art of life. And in heaven, in the paradise, it says it will be right there and everyone will be doing life the way it was finally meant to be. Perfectly designed. You will live with people whose life you admire forever. But then it gets even more intimate in verse 4 when it says, they will see his face. There is a Pixar movie I, I told you about, uh, came out right at the beginning of quarantine called Onward. And if you saw that movie, 
Do you remember um, how the boys, there's these two brothers, and they, they go through all of these adventures. They run from authorities, uh, they, they climb a mountain, uh, they explore a cave, they fight, face a dragon. They put themselves in all of these dangerous situations all and defy all these sort of death-defying odds for one thing, the chance to see their father's face again. Now, think about some of your lost loved ones. What would you give to see their face again for an hour? The significance of this is not just personal, it's really cosmic. Moses, when he's brought up to Mount Sinai to personally meet God, asks if he can see God's face. And God says, no, it will obliterate you. It will kill you. I will hide you in a rock and I will show you the train on the robe of on my robe of glory. But John says, in his little epistle, he says in 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, he says, what heaven and paradise will do to you, you will be like him, and you will see him as he is. Look, one of the deepest longings of your soul and, and, and one of the most cosmic longings of Scripture to be able to know God, not just that He exists and not that just He's there, but to see Him in an intimate way. To look into somebody's face is about the most personal, intimate interaction that you can have in life. You know what this means? It, it means that there will be no more questions about what God is like. All of the moments you've ever had wondering if you can believe and trust a God that you can't see, and you can't know it's there, you will see His face. Not just the train on His robe, you will look into His eyes, and His eyes will look into you, and it will only be treated with a smile. What are your expectations for paradise? When um, my mother passed away about uh, seven years ago, uh, my, one of my children went to school the next day and had to talk uh, about it. And the teacher brought him up front and said something... Um, Something big happened to Miles. And Miles, would you like to tell us about it? And so he, he started to cry to talk about his grandmother passing away. And, and um, the teacher, trying to be very sweet and kind, said, Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Losing loved ones is so sad. And he said, No, that's not why I'm crying. And she said, Well, why are you crying? He said, I'm very afraid of the funeral said, well, why? And he said, because I don't want to watch them burn her and push her into the ocean, which means his only paradigm for a funeral was Star Wars. 
And then as he described this scene, like all the children in the class started crying and becoming horrified and terrified. And the teacher was like, no, 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 no. This is not how a funeral works. This is not what happens. Look, how many things in life do you refuse to try and engage because of wrong expectations? How many of your neighbors know that this is what's promised with Christianity? Do you know what this is? Look, you you have an amazing opportunity in this time and place to testify what Christianity offers in a culture that longs for a healed society. What will you make the testimony of this faith be going forward? Because what Revelation offers us is a picture of a consummated world in Christ. That's what's coming. And that's what God has given us, a paradise. Now, secondly, how can you, make that, how can you know and make that yours? Well, look what he says in verse 7. This is Jesus talking to us. He says, behold, I am coming soon. And then again in verse 12, he says this, behold, I am coming soon. Now, this language is throughout the book of Revelation. And uh, the word coming, again, uh, the tenses of these verbs are not suggested that Jesus is just hidden and far away from us. And one day he will finally show up but that he is here and present and there is a veil behind us and he is moving closer and closer and closer in history to us and one day will fully be revealed. But he is on the move coming here. But coupled with this, there is this language in verse 17 and 20 that says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And then again in verse 20, he who testifies these things Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, why would John continually encourage us with this prayer, come, if Jesus says, I'm coming soon, and especially follows that up with says, he who testifies to these things is saying the truth? I mean, from one angle, it sort of looks like, are we not believing him when he says he's coming? Are we asking him something like in a nagging way? No, it's meant to be a harmonic prayer of where we find ourselves in the story. See, wherever God's people are in the story of redemption, there really is a constant prayer. In creation, the prayer was, this is good. It is good. In the fall, the prayer is of God's people, send a redeemer. Lord, help. Lord, rescue us. And in consummation, in paradise, the prayer will be hallelujah to the lamb. Forever and ever he reigns. But you and I find ourselves in chapter 3, in the story of redemption, and the prayer of God's people is to say, come, Lord Jesus. 
And all of those prayers sort of have a fabric through them that basically have a mutual longing to be together with God. See, the city of God, it comes in stages. And the prayer of God's people is to echo those stages in the way that we long for it. See, all of these aspects of paradise, they're not just things in themselves. You know, it's not just uh, a gift that's abstract uh, or, or a thing over there that we'll just enjoy apart from God. Look, when it says there's a river of satisfaction, everything that John says here is actually commenting on and picking up something he's told us in his Gospels. It says, the river of satisfaction. You remember Jesus meets this woman at the well who's there to get water, and he says, I offer you living water. Water that will never make you thirst again. And then in John 7, he stands up at the great feast and says, come to me and drink and out of you will flow rivers of living water. You know what the living river of heaven and paradise is? Is It's Jesus. And this tree of life. Uh, Francis Turretin, 17th century scholar, he says, uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is, was a tree of trial or a tree of law. And he says the other main tree was the tree of life, the promise of reward, the promise of consummation. And what Turretin says in his works, he said, if Adam had eaten that tree, heaven would have inaugurated right then and there. Immortality, and everything that we long for or aiming for would have already been given right then and there. That is, the tree, it wasn't just a way to life. It was the taste of life itself. It is life. In chapter 1 of John's gospel, he introduces who Jesus is. He says, in him was life. That this tree that will be there forever, it, it, it's not just some sort of abstract thing. It is Jesus himself, more than just the bread of life, the food that tastes like perfect, true life. Turton says this. He says, Christ is the true tree of life because as the mediator he is the prince of life, giving life to the world and eternal life in heaven by glory. He is the center of paradise in which all the lines of faith and love meet and acquiesce in him. He bears the sweetest and most exquisite fruit for the nourishment of believers that will never run out. And here's what all this means. The great reward in heaven is Jesus himself. And here's the question it asks you. Do you want the gifts 
Or do you want the giver of the gifts? Bill Clinton, in his uh, memoir, or it's one of his memoirs, I don't know how many he wrote, said that one of his best friends throughout his entire presidency was Billy Graham. Which may be fascinating to you, uh, considering some of the things that we knew publicly about his life. But he said Billy Graham was one of his only friends for those eight years. And he said the reason why is because Billy Graham was the only person he knew during those years who wanted nothing from him, who just wanted to be with him, who just wanted to be his friend and support him. Look, here's how you have to begin to make this yours. Do you want a life and God is the means to get you that life? Or do you want him who is life in himself? And later on, when John records what's called the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know you. And the word to know is not just a head knowledge. It's an intimate marriage knowledge forever and ever and ever. Now, these verses in, uh, in verse 15, when it says, outside, outside of the paradise are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Look, the image here of, uh, it, it, it is not those of you, or I should say those of us, who struggle deeply with sin and brokenness in our life and are just wondering, God, will you be merciful on me at the gates of paradise? And God will go, no, you had more of this in your life than the pursuit of holiness. That's not what the text is basically saying. What it's suggesting is that Jesus is going to return and give people what they want. Thomas Watson, um, the Puritan uh, minister, has a sermon called, uh, God is His People's Great Reward. And he says, here's how you begin to navigate life and make heaven yours. And fight the temptations to want other things other than Him. He says, you can't just hear that God is your great reward. He says, because you'll hear it and it'll be like breath on steel. It'll be on there and then gone in a second. He says, what you actually have to do is to deeply meditate and keep this out in front of you and tell yourself and pursue it every day. That the reward and the offer, that everything that you want is God himself. Because what God will do in the most gracious way possible is that he will give you what you want forever. See, if you want idols, and anything that you want more than God himself is an idol. If you want that thing, God will actually give it to you forever. 
And you will go spend eternity with that thing and only that thing and become angry at that thing for it not giving you everything that you long for and want. But if you want God, he says, you will have it forever. And there will be no end. And every moment will get better than the one before. And so what Watson says is if you want to make that, you want that, and you want to make it yours, he says, every day, fix your eyes on the reward of God himself. Never stop thinking about it. He says this so beautifully, we can't talk this way anymore. He says, be in the altitudes. Think what God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, that our thoughts could ascend. The higher the bird flies, the sweeter it sings. Let us think how blessed they are who possessed of their eternal heritage. If one could but look a while through the chinks of heaven's doors and see the beauty and bliss of paradise, if he could but lay his ear to heaven and hear the ravishing music of those seraphic spirits and the anthems of praise which they would sing, how his soul would be exhilarated and transported with joy. Look, this paradise, if you want to make it yours, go after it today. Because God will give it to you. And don't just hear it and acknowledge it. Meditate on it. Want it more than being famous. Want it more than being successful. Want it more than being at peace. Want it more than being in control. Want it more than just being loved. Want God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Is the promise of paradise. And you can make it yours by pursuing him and throwing off everything that hinders you and fixing your eyes on the reward, which is Jesus himself. What is it? It's an incredible promise. With unending satisfaction, the art of life in the face of God, you can make it yours by throwing off all of the benefits and pursuing the author of life himself and, and wanting him who will give you exactly what you want. But third question, how can you know it will actually be yours? Look, the chief command through the whole book of Revelation is the word look. In the ESV, it actually says behold. He says this in verse 12, behold. I'm coming soon. Throughout, John wants us to pause and to continue to look. And you know what we behold most? Is in the center of this city is a lamb on a throne. See, how can you know for sure that this will be yours? Well, one of the, the instincts that we have spiritually is to wonder if we're fervent enough if we're spiritually vibrant enough, but here's the trick of Revelation, is we don't look within, we look outside and up who's on the throne, and who's on the throne is 
a lamb. Here's what I mean. Look, how can you have the tree of life? It's because the lamb in the middle of paradise climbed a cross. The tree of death so that you can have the tree of life. Like, how can you have the river of the water of life? It's because on the cross, the Lamb, Jesus himself said, I thirst. Look, on, on the cross, he, Jesus had a, had a cosmic dehydration. He, he, he lost all hope. He lost all comfort. He lost all love. He lost everything, all God, all joy, all meaning, so that you can have water forever. It tells us this, that there are no more curses in paradise because Galatians 3 says, on the cross, Jesus became a curse for you. It says there's no more night. One of the things the gospel tells us is that on the cross, Jesus died in darkness. Because in, in the darkness, what's happening is all of the cosmic curses and abandonment of God is happening for you so that in Him, you can have the light of life forever and ever and ever. It says this, uh, those in paradise, their names are written on his forehead, on our foreheads. The only person who had a name written on their forehead was the high priest. And he had it on his forehead on Yom Kippur when he would go in to the Holy of Holies and make the ultimate sacrifice and take the blood sacrifice in there and be acceptable in God's holy present sight. But in paradise, you will all have that name written on your forehead. Why? Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the final blood sacrifice so that you and I at all times, it will be like we are the high priest who is always acceptable in God's presence. And what does all this mean? Listen, it, it means that the way to know that paradise can be yours is the Lamb doing all of this for you. Like, do you know the hymn? that says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. A frame is an emotional state. It's a spiritually vibrant moment. Look, when God gives you spiritually vibrant, intimate moments, how sweet and beautiful they are, but they are not our assurance. They are not what we know will promise us to have your name written in the book of life and to stand in paradise forever. There's only one thing. It's to stand in Jesus' name. And the promise and the hope of heaven is that Jesus underwent every curse, every darkness, all of these things so that you might be in paradise forever. Look, our culture is so drawn to this idea of substitutionary sacrifice. It's, it's amazing how beautiful this story is to renew and change people without even knowing what the story points to. That movie Onward, here's how it ends. It's these two little boys 
who desperately want to see the Father. One, a faithful son. The other, the biggest goofball who's not done anything right in his life. But there's a dragon in the way of getting to their father at the only moment where they can have the father. And the faithful, loving son goes to fight the dragon and to give his life. And he actually misses out on seeing his father's face so that his goofball who does, brother who does nothing right can look his father in the face. And everybody who saw that movie is blown away and drawn in again to the idea of substitutionary love. Do you know why? It's because God has written it into the fabric of every part of life. And to say, this is the hope of paradise. And it's not just a movie, and it's not just a myth. It's true. It's the way the world will work. Do you know it? Do you base your life on it? Do you base your relationship with God on it? Not on on, on your works, not on your heart emotions, not on how you feel, but on how God has shaped and done the world. Because he says, this is how I will satisfy the longing of this world. And paradise is coming with it. this This is the last thing Jesus says about himself in the whole Bible. He says in verse 16, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is the last thing Jesus wants you to know about him in all of Scripture. That he is the bright morning star. Now, what does this mean? Bright morning star, they say, comes about two, between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's at the height of darkness. It, the, it, the night can't get any darker than it is right then and there. But when the bright morning star appears, it doesn't mean that uh, the light is immediately coming. But when the bright morning star appears, it means the night has peaked. And the night is starting to fade away. And morning is coming. When Jesus says, I am the bright morning star, he is saying, the darkness of your life has peaked. And I am the testimony that morning is coming. And my paradise is coming with me. I love the lyric, it says, dark, dark had been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Look, paradise is coming. Is it yours? Make it yours. That's the testimony of of Revelation from John in 96 AD on the island of Patmos. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father, thank you for this gift of this book. And that's our hope, and that's our goal, and that's what we long for. Lord, for anyone here, 
who's never known and tasted your substitutionary love, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, make it theirs. Lord, change the trajectory of their life, the goals of their life, the testimony of what they're doing, and mark it by the Lamb. We do pray, Lord, that you would continue to make this the testimony of the church. Paradise to come is what we're living for, aiming for, and throwing all of our eggs in that basket. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.